Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. On behalf of Disciple of City, I'm Todd Carlton, and this is the Toddcast. My guest today hails from Kitchener, Ontario. He was up in our area on some ministry business and stopped by the studio. He's the executive director of E3 Ministries Canada and the CAO of Anchor Ministerial Fellowship. Please welcome Jeremy Dorton. <laughs> we got music and applause. This is good. We got a live studio audience. Right on. <laughs> we actually do have a live studio audience with us today because Sean Jones from episode four and five is here. Hey, Sean. Hey, guys. Right on. Awesome. Hey, man. Thanks for coming. Oh, hey, it's a pleasure. Anytime I get to hang out with Todd Carlton and the Toddcast, that is pretty rad. Amen. Right on. Yeah, I'm glad you had some time. You guys are up in Peterborough uh, for some ministry uh, stuff yesterday. Yeah. And so I'm glad it worked out that you had time to stop by on your way home. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. Last night was cool. We were working with Disciple of City and doing a, a, a live cast, live stream, and launching this idea of reaching everybody in Canada, like every disciple sent. Mobilize them, train them up, send them out. Let's reach a nation for Jesus. Amen. Really looking forward to that. Awesome. That's going to be exciting. Jeremy, um, can you uh, t- just talk about growing up as we had a little chat before we uh, got on the air here about how you grew up and, and you described it as a legalistic sort of upbringing. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that's like for, I mean, I didn't, I didn't even actually know what that word meant <laughs> until a bunch of years ago. So can you just yeah. sort of explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And you know, like I, I honor my parents in the, the, the fact that they raised us in the faith. Um, but we were part of a, a, a really strong, strict, legalistic Dutch reform tradition. And I'm not saying Dutch reform is bad or wrong or anything like that, but it caused us to grow up in uh, an environment that basically said, follow the rules and somehow you'll find Jesus. And that's not necessarily always the case. And so in, in our family tradition, we went to church we wore, you know, like our Sabbath clothes. It was Sunday morning. You'd put on those clothes that were, you know, the good looking clothes that heaven forbid you get dirty, right? <laughs> they had to stay clean. You couldn't go out and like do so much as even throw a baseball because that would somehow kind of, it's not that it would violate the Sabbath, but you might get your Sunday clothes dirty, <laughs> you know? And, but the motivation was we are going to set this day aside for the Lord. But, but here's where it got tricky. My mom and dad didn't get a whole lot out of service one and we were expected to be at service two in the afternoon. And so eventually my family stopped going to that second service. And then it got to the place of bi-monthly elders visits in our home because now we were considered wandering and apostate and kind of going astray from the faith. And then it got to a point where as a family, we were forbidden to take the Lord's supper or wow. what some would call communion. Wow, the scriptures are pretty clear about do this in remembrance of me, but because you don't go to the second service, you you can no longer partake. You're not worthy enough. Wow, now that's kind of different. And then simultaneously, my sister started attending this Mennonite Brethren youth group that was down the road, and their lives started getting touched. And I had three older sisters. I have three older sisters, and uh, my my the middle of my older sisters, Tanya, she. Uh, she came home weeping tears of joy the one day, and she's like, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior tonight, and 
my mom was ticked. <laughs> she was upset. And she's like, what is it? Is this a cult? Like, you don't choose Jesus. You're predestined unto salvation. What are they teaching you kids over there? Like, I got to talk to someone. And uh, mom and dad started kind of investigating things, and they started seeing the fruit of salvation coming out in their kids. And they were seeing the legalism and the bondage that they were under in the tradition that they grew up in. And, and suddenly they saw, wow, if we start to pursue Jesus himself rather than the system that we were born in, it might bear good fruit like we're seeing in our kids. And so eventually we made a shift over. And uh, that tr- church tradition we grew up in announced publicly that we'd left the faith. Even though we had actually just really started coming into the faith. And uh, I, I'll never forget it that one day, like things started to progress in our lives. We were starting to get disciples, starting to know the Lord more. And I remember being uh, baptized when I was 16 years old, uh, the same day as my mom. Wow. And uh, I went in fully immersed, came back up. And uh, my mom had some disabilities with multiple sclerosis and uh, she couldn't get in the tank. So they. They uh, put out a big old tarp and dumped a, a five-gallon bucket on her head on the stage <laughs> to immerse her as much as they could. <laughs> and so that was the beginning of a, uh, a long process in our lives, just moving into this, this, uh, this relationship with Christ. And, and he, he transformed our entire family, Wow, the that's whole a, family. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I oftentimes, you know, just talking about legalism, I, I oftentimes wonder if if the root of all that kind of comes from a genuine heart where they, you know, they really want to help people regardless of the denomination, you know, and then sort of our human instincts take over where it starts to begin to shift from a, a maybe a heart place to kind of controlling. Yeah, but um, absolutely. What, what does brethren, what is that rooted out of? Oh, well, I wasn't, I was raised in uh, what was called the Canadian reform tradition. And, and so that tradition, and I appreciate what you said, because I've got not one single thing against my brothers and sisters in that Dutch reform tradition, not at all. But for us, yeah, you're, you're right. It was probably birthed out of this heart. Like we are going to preserve this thing as best as we can, because if we deviate from what we felt our conviction was in the beginning, somehow we're going to lose our way. Yeah. And so the heart and the intention of it is really good. But sometimes, yeah, your heart can drift from, from that original sense of calling from God. So yeah. Anyway, so I've got loads of friends who are still in that tradition and, and they find a richness in Christ. And sometimes that's okay. And sometimes you need to experience God in a different way. Like a man, the first time I ever went overseas, we'll probably talk about it today in this podcast, but first time I went overseas and saw God on the global stage, that transformed me. It, it required a change of venue. It take me to another place where God would speak to me. You know, that's why we take kids out on youth group retreats and stuff like that. Get out of your normal environment and get yourself in the presence of God in a different way. And he tends to speak, you know. So some people, yeah, hey, they've been in their tradition, their church tradition, their entire lives. And it's good for them. And others, hey, they change. And, you know, even especially in this season, pandemic season, my goodness, people are moving about. Yeah, there, there, There's a lot of transitions, a lot of exits from this church to the next. You know what? If there's pastors listening, bless and release them. 
Yeah. Just it, make sure they land somewhere, but bless and release them and just trust that, hey, in their new season, in their new chapter, in their new church, if that's what's happening, that God will get a hold of their hearts in a whole new way. And they'll grow. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's talk about overseas, but uh, did, did was there a tangible encounter or did you have something in your teenage years or in that transition from this church to that church? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, man, I encountered the Holy Spirit when I was eight years old. So I was still in this Dutch reform tradition. And then again, uh, the, you know, that, that take the kid out of the normal environment and place him somewhere else. And the Salvation Army somehow sponsored our family. And uh, we had never, like, that wasn't a part of our church tradition, like youth camp or anything. Uh, not even Sunday school. None of those things were a part of our church growing up. And somebody said, hey, you're going to go off to this camp. And, uh, oh, man. I distinctly remember like encountering Holy Spirit in uh, for the first time. So I had all of this theological underpinning, all this training and stuff, you know, from from my reformed roots. And then I don't have the foggiest clue what the guy preached that night. But whatever it was, it was just cracking open my soul. <laughs> and then I remember they somebody sat behind a keyboard and, and this simple song, Father, I adore you. Lay my life before you. How I love you. Oh, man. And just inside, everything was falling away. And then and, and I'm like, what is this? And I was encountering the Holy Spirit for the first time. And I remember this young counselor saying, hey, do you want to go up and pray? And, and receive Christ as your Lord. And I'm like, well, yeah, okay. And I, I made that leap of faith. I got up, I went there and, uh, and she says, you're going to go ahead and pray. And I'm like, well, what do I pray? And she says, I, well, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> she's like, let me get a, a counselor who knows a little bit more how to help you. She didn't know how to lead me to Christ, but she brought me to the altar. It was great. <laughs> and then she brings in this other person. I, I have no clue who this was, but they led me to Christ right there and i just i didn't understand it i had no concept this construct of of god now knows me personally and i know him that's not what i knew growing up but in this moment it's like i could reach out right now physically touch this microphone it's like i could reach out and just holy spirit was all around it was insane transformation in a moment and uh that day i yielded my heart to christ and not long after i i don't even know was it a person or an angel? I have no clue, but these words were spoken over me somewhere that somebody challenged me. If you're to be in ministry, don't stoop to be a king or a doctor or a lawyer or anything else because ministry is a high calling in Christ. Mm. But Okay. And uh, pretty much from that day on, from when I was eight years old, it was like, yeah, I'm going to serve you, Jesus, the rest of my life, and I'm gonna, I'll never look back. Yeah? Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was absolutely transformative. It's funny how you said that you don't know what the pastor was preaching that night or what the preacher was preaching. It's like, for me, my first moment, I was listening to The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, and I have no idea where it was in the book or what he said, and maybe it wasn't anything specific that he said, but it's that person or, in your instance, that pastor where you're sort of standing on the edge where you just get, boom, that that push into it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, Bring us up to, because you were talking upstairs about when you got married. Yeah. So bring us up to that and then into your world travels that you alluded to a minute ago. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So like in those early formative years, man, um, 
wow, life was challenging in my home. <laughs> uh, God started touching my mom, touching my dad, touching my sisters. And, uh, but yet, oh, it's so messy. So, so messy. My mom, bless her heart. She passed on now. Uh, at the age of 53, she, she had a pulmonary embolism that took her out complications from MS. Oh. And, uh, we found her on the kitchen floor and she had passed into the presence of the Lord. Uh, but man, did she leave a messy wake behind her. And a legacy of, uh, she was the one who pointed me to Jesus. And so, you know, sometimes we get impatient with the people around us because, oh man, they just cause so much stress and drama and tension. And yet, yet they love Jesus, you know? And uh, she's this beautiful example of, of, of a messy person who loved Jesus. So she pointed me to Christ. In fact, it was like early years with my mom doing precept ministry, Bible studies. We did discipleship time together and grew in my faith. And then when I was 17, got this opportunity and, uh, and I took a leap of faith and I launched out to Mali, West Africa. <laughs> I'd never been on an airplane before. I was like growing up milking cows on a farm and, and you know, trying to figure out everything and then this opportunity came and it was just clear as day. And I've had people like, wow, you must have had real intense faith. I'm like, no, it just was the next step. You know, mm. when God drops something, it's there. It's not even my faith. It's God's blessing. He poured it out in front of me, said, go. And uh, I jumped on a plane and I went out to the foothills in Alberta for a couple months of training and learning how to articulate my faith and share the gospel and do music and drama and puppetry and chalk art and whatever it's going to take to convey the gospel and grab people's hearts. And then uh, November 23rd, got on a plane in 1996, and I found myself in Mali, West Africa. And, and of course, you know this, but I distinctly remember we're driving in, in the car and uh, in the van, and I'm like, I am literally the only white guy like <laughs> at all. Not that that matters. It was just, this is the first time in my life I am now the visible minority. Mm. Wow, 98% of these folks around me are also Muslim. There's Muslim prayer calls happening around me at 5 a.m. and all different times of the He's like, wow, my world was just getting blown apart and it was hot. It was 49 degrees Celsius in the shade in Mali, legitimately. Yeah. Like, yeah, like what is that, 120 degrees, you know, Fahrenheit. And, uh, but man, oh man, did God cement and solidify so many things in my heart. Like I, I showed up as a, I, I sense my mom, my mom actually said this before she passed. She's like, yeah, you, you left a, a young boy in the faith and you came home as a man of God. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So God, God did a lot in me in Mali, West Africa. We ended up living in the Sahara Desert on the edge, literally on the edge of the Niger River in our own grass huts that we built and mosquito nets strung to keep the malaria out of us and spent four and a half months there. And uh, every night we'd go out by vehicle in these dusty, dusty roads in the back of an S10 Chevy, just like tiny little thing, and sitting there with our heads wrapped with cloths to try to keep the dust out of our face. We, we dressed like the Fulani people so that we could keep the dust out of our face, and we'd show up at villages, and uh, many of these villages had never seen a white man before, and that was fun. You know, <laughs> They would warn their kids and tell their kids, hey, if you're bad, the white ape will come out of the forest and eat you. 
You know, you have these idle threats to your kids and then that's what they would tell their kids. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like their folklore thing that they would say to their kids to threaten yeah. their kids. And then here I come along white missionary, you know, and <laughs> I'm like, hi kids. And they're like, that's ah, the white ape. <laughs> like literally what? they were run. They were so terrified of us and, until, you know, the, the elders would gather them and then uh, we would present, uh, we couldn't speak the local language. So we would, we would present drimes like drama mime where you act everything out the crucifixion of christ and and uh, it was really revealing too man we would see that people we would start beating up the jesus in our mind and uh and when we'd start actually beating the jesus character and throw him on the ground and he's rolling in the dust and he's writhing in pain the louder the crowd would laugh Hmm. and the pastor pascal dow he said to us you know when the people start laughing they're revealing to you that you're touching their hearts because they culturally yeah culturally inside they're like no don't hurt the jesus guy but on the outside they want to save face so they start laughing and when we would hoist him up and crucify him on that air cross you know that mock cross uh people would go from laughter to tears rolling down their face because they were yielding their hearts to the jesus that they were seeing in front of them wow yeah we saw hundreds and hundreds of people respond to the gospel. And in the end, like there's a real cost for a Muslim person in that culture to follow Christ, um, often at the cost of, of your family who will ostracize you, maybe even cost you your life. Yeah. And um, in the end, we saw 20 people truly make a response and convert and, and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, get discipled and, and start to live as believers in that society. So what do you think? Four and a half months, is it worth it for 20 people? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, did you did you guys have, so you didn't have translators with you? You were kind of going, how, how did you find these villages? Yeah, that's a good point. It was, it was let me say this, it was not the smartest setup. Um, the organization that sent us out, they sent us into a new field where they had some new contacts and the missionary, uh, he didn't make very smart business decisions. Let's just say that. And basically the nine of us from ages 17 to 29 were dropped in uh, a little place called Kulukoro in the middle of Mali, West Africa. And we were kind of told here, figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, everybody on my team tried to learn that local language called Bambara. And uh, I saw an opportunity. I'm like, you know what? I've got a little bit of high school French here. All the trade and everything happens in that language. So I just poured myself into this thing. And, and honestly, supernaturally, the Lord gave me the language. And I was able to speak conversationally fluent. It was probably unrefined. But uh, I was able to share the gospel in, in that West African French language. I was able to you know hire a taxi to come get us from one area to another. And, and then the local pastor that we were staying with, who had maybe 14 words of English, we would work it out together and he'd get us out to the villages. And um, yeah, every night we'd be out there, we'd do the drawing, the pastor would preach, he would convey the gospel in their heart language. And then we'd show a video with a generator and a reel to reel projector. We'd show the Jesus film in their language one night. And then the second night we'd return and we'd talk. Uh, we had a film called Le Combat, which is talking about sorcery and animism. Uh, because this is a real part of the culture there. And so between this combination of these like green behind the ears, wet behind the ears, Canadian kids partnering with African pastor, uh, we served the, the people of Mali. 
And, and sorry, maybe you said it, but how old were you when you did this? <laughs> 17. 17? Yeah, had never been on a plane, never left home, and I, here I am in the middle of West Africa. I just, wow, God, you need to sustain us. <laughs> wow, that is that is incredible. Yeah. It's a lot more moving than what I was doing when I was 17, bro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> All in his time, though, right? Yeah. So, okay, so then uh, you come back from Mali, uh, Mali, and, and then what? Yeah, I came back from Mali, and uh, God did a cool thing while I was in Mali, like getting mail across, email. Actually, I sent my very first email ever from Mali, West Africa, back home to this girl named Catherine. And uh, we got a bunch of snail mail letters back and forth, back and forth. And we worked out some things that God was speaking to us. And by the time I came home from Mali, I had a clear sense that God had told me to marry this girl. And um, that was strange because I always, you know, believed in dating with the intentionality of marriage. Right. And I dated a couple of girls and then uh, through the years and it was like, no, you're not the right one that God has for me. Okay. And, and that, that relationship fell apart. But in this case, I realized, oh, she's the one. She's been praying for me. She would send me a letter once a year in our correspondence in Canada saying, hey, I'm still praying that God will make you my husband. And so literally it was like a conscious decision. I realized, oh, that's what you're doing, God. When this ministry tour is done at the end of a year long of ministry tour, I'm going to I'm going to come home, date her and I'm going to marry her. And I, I, I let her know that I'm ready for that. What do you think? And she says, yeah, I will break the relationship that I'm in because I never sensed it was fully marriageable and we'll date and we'll marry like like robots. Like it seems, you know, it seems mechanical, <laughs> yeah. transactional. Yeah. But it was a clear call of God that we were to marry. So we got married at 19 and 20 years of age. And uh, we, we flew out west. We joined that same missionary organization. We started mobilizing people to the to the mission field around the world. And then God called us to pastor our first church. And, and we moved up to uh, snowy Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, where we spent six years in our pastorate. And we were always warned as pastors, you know, the first five years are good, but when you hit that five-year mark, something seems to happen relationally. And it was true. Year six was glorious. We were starting to really see some depth of relationship and discipleship. And then my wife was struck down medically. Hmm. And uh, wow, it, it, it was a, a painful situation. She ended up having an emergency hysterectomy and, and, uh, you know, that dream, it was a, that's a whole other part of our story, man. Like the dream of, of bearing and raising many children was taken away. And, uh, now what do we do? And well, there was a tremendous relief that came with that surgery because this horrible pain that my wife suffered from endometriosis and other issues was gone. And then a week later, all hell broke loose, excuse the phrase, but she was now suddenly riddled with the worst imaginable torture of pain within the human body and all of her muscles started cramping and tensing and um, it, yeah, it started this journey of every 48 hours back at the hospital for intravenous of magnesium. Her body was kicking out her magnesium and uh, she was slowly wasting away and um was that what was that like a result of the surgery and hormonal differences or what yeah what? at the end of the day it's a it's a weird little piece of science in gut science that kind of falls between the cracks so if you're extremely extremely sick with with some of these things they may say that you have addison's disease but if you fall somewhere just slightly under the spectrums that the doctors have you don't get that diagnosis and you suffer mm. and uh, as it turned out something physiologically switched in my wife's body surgeries 
and uh, and sicknesses and multiple rounds of antibiotics had basically burned holes in her gut. Wow. And she started leaking magnesium and she, it couldn't be repaired. And without magnesium in your bloodstream, you can't retain your muscles and your heart is a muscle and your brain is a muscle and her, her resting heart rate. And she was sitting on the couch running a marathon, 144 beats a minute resting on a couch. So they gave her three months to live and said, you're going to have cardiac arrest. And uh, that's that's when we said, well, God, I don't know how to pastor, raise four kids across the country. We we adopted two kids from Canada. We adopted two kids from Congo. Suddenly I was a dad with, <laughs> with a three-year-old and a two-year-old and a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old who just showed up from a refugee camp in Africa and my wife's dying. And you're how old, you guys? At that point, we would have not even hit 30 at 26 so young 26 so what do we do god and we prayed and we prayed and we sensed the release of god and we were to release the pastorate release all those people that we loved who became our family we were raising our kids in in community in, in prince albert and we uh we said okay it's time to go i don't know how to be a single dad across the country with no family and and uh that's when the lord did some cool things and uh we ended up being introduced on the last day of living in that province. We met a compounding pharmacist, a compounding pharmacist. What is that? And it's a, it's a pharmacist who has done naturopathic studies and can combine these various fields of medicine and are licensed to make meds from a raw form where, where the big boys, Pfizer and all of those companies can't make a billion dollars, but there might be a cure. Um, yeah, people suffer because that cure isn't marketable. Okay, but this compounding pharmacist heard my wife's story and her symptoms, and she was the first practitioner to say, I know what's wrong with you and how to treat it. You're going to be okay, honey. Gave her a, a supplement, which was simply a ridiculous probiotic culture. Started healing my wife's gut, and 24 hours later, the situation turned around. 24 hours. She, in fact, she never returned to the hospital again for the very illness that was killing her. <laughs> Amen. So God used that woman to help us. And in the process, we met this 70 year old farmer turned inventor who had made some resources in life, had a huge heart for evangelism, but he knew he was past his prime. He, he wasn't the guy to lead it. He had heard about the ministry of E3, equipping people to do the work of evangelism and establishing churches all over the world. And uh, he came back to Canada after meeting some of these people down in the States in Florida at his winter home. And he's like, Lord, yes, I sense that God is saying we have to do this in Canada. If, if this is real and these numbers that we're seeing of thousands of people's lives transformed, churches being established, church planting movements, the fourth generation exploding all around the world, we have to have this in Canada. And so we started praying and, and uh, on that last day before we were leaving, leaving town, I had a call with him. We had some business stuff that we were doing uh, together and I said, Hey, I've got to go. And, um, but Hey, you've been talking about this E3 thing for a while. Um, I got a little cheeky. I'm like, if you're sponsoring, I'd love to go see one of these things, you know, <laughs> and we got chatting and then I said, wait a second, if I could take one thing out of my pastorate that I could do in life with people, what would it be? It would be take them on that short-term mission, minimum one to two weeks, get them out of this culture, bring them to another one and let them see Jesus in action. I, I would give my life to that. That'd be pretty amazing. And he looked at me and he says, Jeremy, so you're the one. So what do you mean? 
So I've been praying that God would ask somebody to put up their hand and say, I will champion this work of E3. And it's you. I'm like, okay, you want to work together on this? He says, yeah, here's the deal. I'm going to cover your salary. Your family will be fine. You'll have food on the table. Go home. Get your wife medical help. Try, see what will happen in Ontario. See if you can bring this thing around. And when you're ready, let's let's pray into this. Let's launch E3 Canada. And here we are now, 12 years later. We've got uh, 23 vocational staff from coast to coast in Canada. We've got dozens, hundreds of what we call practitioners, people who are just going out. Even like our friends here at Disciple the City, like, took some of the very same tools and training from E3 and started putting it into action. Now it's growing into this phenomenal ministry called Disciple of City. And it's all based on these simple tools that we've been learning from around the world. And yeah, it's just, God is just incredible. <laughs> what more can I say? <laughs> and and so now you're the executive director. Well, yeah, by just by virtue of the fact that I love people and I had a heart for this thing and I launched it out of my home and I had a, a crazy first follower who was willing to jump in the fire with me and try to bring a dream to reality. And then we started praying for three areas. What about French Canada? What about our first nations communities? And what about urban centers with immigrant populations com- coming from all over the world? And one by one, God gave us a, a director in French Canada who now leads a whole arm of our ministry called Je suis deuxième, je suis deuxième.com. Try spelling that. I won't say it on the air. It's too hard. It's a tongue twister. <laughs> All right. And uh, Sean Jones, who is on the show, you say episode four and five, is it? Yeah. His wife is now a part of that Je suis deuxième team and leading uh, a move of God in French Canada. Um, we've got people planted in urban centers, uh, reaching all sorts of people groups and groups. We've got friends out in in uh, Manitoba who are reaching into the First Nations indigenous communities. And this thing has gone vastly beyond anything I could have dreamed or imagined. And I just like, I'm so stoic. I'm 12 years in. I've never done anything so long in my life. And I feel like I'm just getting started. Like, really? We've got, we've got literally millions of people in Canada who are yet to follow Christ. Maybe they've heard some pieces of the gospel, but their hearts haven't been touched to a place where they're making a decision to follow Jesus. Like I did when I was eight years old, Yeah, we got to bring it to them. Like I, there's nothing else that would captivate my heart, this side of glory than doing this. Yeah. So hundred percent. Yeah. And, and as if you're not already busy as with that, <laughs> right. You're also the CAO for anchor ministerial fellowship. Yeah. So before we move on, can you just touch on that? What, what anchor ministerial fellowship is? Absolutely. Anchor ministerial fellowship is we're, we're a collection of individuals who like, sometimes you're born in or you're raised in a denomination and you get a sense of a calling to some style or type of ministry. And then you go through a licensing process with your denomination or get credentialed, become ordained as a reverend, uh, you know, that formal aspect of ministry. But what do you do with people like me? I don't, fit in. I serve the body of Christ all over the place with E3. I'm the strategy director in Philippines, like for E3. Like I, I don't fit into a denominational box. I serve the body of Christ widely. Like if you're ready to put up your hand and say, Lord, here I am, send me, let's go partner in the gospel. Um, that's who I want to partner with. 
And so I don't want to get locked into my like brethren denomination, the Mennonites or the, the, the Canadian reformed or whichever, you know, in my whole journey growing up, um, anchor gives us the opportunity to license and credential those people who just don't quite fit into a denomination or need a, a spiritual accountability and covering or people like you who happen to be in a firefighting industry and say, hey, I want to reach out and, and chaplain and love on my brothers in our houses around us. We had the opportunity to credential you, give you an opportunity to have a ministerial license and then uh, and then possibly seek ordination. And with ordination in this province, that allows you then to marry and bury. Right. <laughs> you can uh, you can or um, officiate weddings and yeah. be a part of the. Uh, the burial rites, which you've even had opportunity to do since coming to Anchor Ministerial. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so that's uh, that's just a beautiful thing. We've got uh, 156 members now um, in southern Ontario predominantly, but I have just this huge dream and vision that if we serve the body of Christ that well in terms of like the need in southern Ontario within like, say, three hours of Kitchener where I live, we need to offer this to the rest of Canada. Yeah. So there's ministers out there who, who, who see the value of that, that licensing and the, the opportunity to have some tax benefit as well, clergy residence deduction, and they need to align with an organization and it's not for them a denomination, then they can come join us. And uh, we do a lot of things to resource them. We have grow days, we call them, once a quarter, where it's like an in-service just to grow our hearts. We have an annual conference. There's just a bunch of great things that come with membership. Yeah. So, yeah. And I can vouch for that, too, because I'd love to be part of all of those things. Very moving. Yeah. Very moving. Um, so let's transition Let's transition into some of your family history. Sure. So this is something that that I don't know about of your story, and uh, I'm I'm really curious to hear it. But uh, you have Jewish heritage, yeah. 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 That's a part of the story that you haven't heard yet, folks. Like, this is a crazy thing. This life, if I were reading this in a memoir or something, like, wow, what a life. Like, it's varied. It's crazy. It's West Africa. It's infertility. It's the, the almost death of your wife. And what? And for like, for 15 years now, I've been saying, my goodness, I've lived this most bizarre life, but so full that if I were to die today, it would be a life well lived. And yet, there's a backstory that even predates me. Uh, I'm a Jewish kid. <laughs> I'm a I'm a Dutch born uh, son of a Jewish family, and that has a part to play in my life as well. So maybe I can uh, end this podcast with a bit of a a thought, some some stories that come out of that Jewish heritage. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Let's hear it, bro. All right. Well, let me just say this to your viewers, your listeners. I'm not a morning guy, all right? So, like, no real wisdom or revelation has ever been penned at my hand in the wee hours of the morning. But uh, a little while ago, in, in the beginning stages of this pandemic, um, I woke up and uh, in the wee hours of the morning, and, and I was kind of touched by something, and I just, ah, what is going on, God? You know? And I sense God just saying, focus on the bigger picture. That was this phrase that kept popping into my spirit. You know, you're trying to tune your ear to hear the voice of the Lord and you hear a, a, a phrase or something, a sentence that settles in your spirit. You realize, yeah, maybe that's the Holy Spirit talking. And so over and over, I just kept hearing him saying, focus on the bigger picture, the bigger picture. 
the bigger picture. And like all too often, we become way too busy with the details of the day-to-day points and the minutia of life, which occupy our time. We forget to see the bigger picture. Like what is God actually doing in this day and age? And I'm personally finding that could not be more true than right now during all of these messes with COVID-19. I need to focus on the bigger picture. God, what are you doing? And so as I kind of ruminated on this thing, I sensed that God reminded me of where I came from. So in the early 1940s, get this, there were approximately 143,000 Dutch Jews living in the Netherlands. And as you likely know, when the Second World War began raging, people were persecuted all over Europe, and certainly not the least of these were the Jews. In fact, get this, by the time the war ended... Out of 143,000 Dutch Jews, 137,000 of them were dead, leaving a remnant of only 6,000 survivors. 4.3% of Jewish society remained, 96% gone. My Oma, my grandmother, was one of the survivors, Rosa Dorton. She was chased out of her community. She was herded into the Westerbork transit camp for transport to the death camps. And miracle after miracle transpired, and one day she slipped through the rotted boards, the floorboards, on a train car, allowing her to escape and live for just one more day. And story after story, and hiding place after hiding place, until the Canadians came. Believe it or not, where I was living in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, there were Canadians in our church who had gone to liberate my family members in the Netherlands. So God, what's the bigger picture of this whole story of Holocaust? Well, in his divine mercy, God had a plan for my Oma. He spared her life. And after the war, he gave her a God-fearing husband. And together they set sail for Canada. They started their life here in a land belonging to those who liberated my family from the death camps. And before long, like ethnic Dutch immigrants started those reform churches. That's what I started in, right? Mm. And see, that's, that's a part of my story. It's a part of what God did in my life. Yeah. They could worship together in their heart language, their vernacular, right? They could lead their children to Christ, raising them in the way of the Lord. And so my Jewish born Oma became a follower of Jesus, the Messiah. <laughs> Can you believe that? Not only did God save Oma from the desecrations of war, he saved her soul. A generation of children were raised in the fear of the Lord and many of their children went on to serve the Lord as well. And, and then I shared with you some of my testimony earlier of coming to faith in Christ, going to Mali, West Africa, and all of that. But beyond that, like, man, that year transformed me so much. I, I kind of got addicted to Jesus and mission. And next, I found myself in Haiti. I brought my dad there. That's where God transformed my dad. He, he really, I believe, got saved while he was on the field with me in Haiti. And then Belize, and then Nicaragua, Colombia, Kenya, God expanded our vision. We went to serve in India where our ministry's now seen 784,000 churches established in seven years. Like, and then look, disclaimer, that's not under my leadership. This is under indigenous, like Indian leadership, right? But man, then God gave me a heart for Asia. We served in Indochina, Cambodia, and then made our base of operations in Philippines. And that's where I pour out my heart in terms of strategy. I lead here in Canada, but really my heart for strategies in Philippines. If we can reach Filipinos for Christ, 
they have this beautiful way of transplanting and blending in in societies and they're going to reach the much harder nations around Philippines, you know, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, those regions. That's where my heart is. So Hmm. listeners, why do I tell you all of this? Do I now boast in myself? Never far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus, Galatians 6, 14. I tell you this to reveal there is a bigger picture. Despite the death and destruction that came from World War II, God saw fit to save one little Jewish woman who would lead her family to Jesus, who would lead the next generation of kids to Jesus. God, in his great mercy, put his finger on me, melted my heart at eight years old, sent me to the nations, and now I have this this awesome privilege of inspiring generations of spiritual children all over the world to do the same. Look, the reality is God set this one little Jewish Oma on a path so that he could redeem countless, countless people. So, friends, God desires to do the same in you. The reality is this. Yes, you. God desires that you and your entire household would be saved. Take a moment. Read Acts 16. You're going to see Paul and Silas. They were beaten. They were bloodied. They were close to death. They were in chains. You might say they were under quarantine measures, locked down. What? Well, in spite of all of that discomfort and pain that they were facing, they were worshiping God. And I encourage you, listeners of the Toddcast, despite all the messes and the awkwardness that you have been going through, I encourage you to open up your hands and your heart and look to God and say, God, what is the bigger picture for me and my family? God is going to do tremendous things in your life if you will yield your heart to him. If you've been a believer your whole life, just take one more step closer to God, even in the awkwardness of this time. Man, there are going to be great stories of what God's going to do in people's lives who are listening. Bless you. Sorry, man. I just need a second there. I'm just like completely covered right now in goosebumps, bro. Praise the Lord. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that story. And what a, what a powerful statement of looking at the bigger picture. Cause a lot of times we just do that. We just get tunnel vision and focused on where we are in this moment and whatever is going on and what is the bigger picture of what he's doing. Yeah. God is writing a story in you and through you right now. You, yes, you, single mom raising your kid. You know, dad, you've been fighting with your wife. God is wanting to write his story through you right now. Amen. Awesome. Amen. <laughs> thanks for thanks again for coming, Jeremy. I love you, bro. Greatest pleasure. Bless you. Sean. Good to see you too again, buddy. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.